It's the Victorian Variety Show. Hong Kong is only an island which fell into the possession of the English by the Treaty of Nankin in 1843. In a few years, the colonizing enterprise of the British made of it an important city and a fine port, Victoria. The island is at the mouth of the Canton River, 60 miles only from Macau, upon the opposite bank. Hong Kong has beaten the other port in the struggle for commercial supremacy. And the greater traffic in Chinese merchandise finds its way to the island. There are docks, hospitals, wharfs, warehouses, a cathedral, a government house, macadamized roads, etc which give to Hong Kong as English in aspect as a town in Kent or Surrey, which had, by some accident, fallen to the antipodes. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast, in which I talk about a wide variety of topics that you may not have heard your teachers talk about when you studied the Victorian era in school or that may not have received as much attention from the mainstream media as the aspects of the Victorian period that we normally hear about. You know which ones I'm talking about, like the one about women not being able to show their ankles, that type of thing. Or I may discuss topics that you might be more familiar with, but relate them to the ones that aren't talked about as much, unless you know where to look. Wink, wink which is what I probably am gonna do this week. But before I go any further, let me introduce myself. My name is Marissa, and I'm a big fan of what's referred to as quote unquote weird history. But I also think it's important for us to be knowledgeable about traditional history as well, which at times might require us to question the so-called traditional narrative and even accept that How can I put this? Some of the phenomena that fascinate us most about a particular period also often have a dark side, which doesn't necessarily mean that we need to stop being interested in it, but it does mean that we should at least recognize the more problematic parts and understand why they're problematic. For example, The quote I just read is taken from the opening of chapter 19 of Round the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne, an author I've discussed in a previous episode of this podcast, and one of the biggest inspirations for today's steampunk movement. He's an author that a lot of people, myself included, enjoy reading, And I would encourage you to read a little Verne, even if you don't normally enjoy reading the type of books he's best known for, to get a feel for the sense of wonder at the possibilities of science and travel that a lot of people had during the Victorian era. But I think it's important at the same time to recognize that those possibilities pretty much were dependent upon imperialism. 
And in the brief excerpt from Verne's classic novel that I just read, I think we can get a good sense of what some popular views toward the colonies were during the Victorian era. Verne acknowledges the importance of Hong Kong, but the way it's phrased, it's, to me at least, it's as if the British are the ones responsible for making it important. And later on, I feel when he talks about the docks, the hospitals, the roads and whatnot, that they're described in relation to how similar they are to the ones in England. In other words, they're defined pretty much exclusively in terms of the dominant culture, rather than on their own terms. Also, the part about the, quote, struggle for commercial supremacy, end quote, between Hong Kong and Macau, which was a Portuguese colony from the 16th century until 1999, when China gained control of it. And by the way, China gained control of Hong Kong two years earlier in 1997. Calls to my mind an image of colonized areas being painted as, you might say, prizes that European colonizers competed against each other to win, basically, rather than, say, a large portion of the Earth's landmass inhabited by many millions of largely non-white people who greatly outnumber the relatively small percentage of white Europeans seeking to gain control over them. But before I go too much further, a few definitions are in order. The first thing I want to point out is that imperialism and colonialism are not one and the same. They're often used interchangeably, which I know because I've done it myself. But as Robert Longley makes clear in an article called What is Imperialism? Definition and Historical Perspective. In reality, imperialism is what drives colonialism, which is the physical practice of global expansion. Essentially, imperialism is like the cause and colonialism is like the effect. Longley explains that under colonialism, people either relocate or are relocated to a new area where they become permanent settlers who continue to remain loyal to their homeland, but utilize the new territory's resources for their homeland's benefit. And under imperialism, these settlers exercise political and economic control in the new territory, very often through military force and violence. And Longley adds that this use of force is normally unprovoked. It's important to stress that imperialism has existed practically since the beginning of recorded history. The Roman Empire quickly comes to mind and you may also be thinking of the Assyrian and Persian empires, or perhaps the Ottoman Empire, which lasted from the end of the 13th century until the early 20th century. But as for the modern era, Longley divides imperialism into three periods of expansive imperialism and quote-unquote aggressive colonialism. The first which lasted from the 15th century to the mid-18th century, saw England, France, Spain, the Netherlands, 
and Portugal build empires in North and South America and Asia, partly to establish trade routes with the East. For example, the East India Company was chartered by the British government in 1600 to develop trade in Southeast Asia, and eventually controlled a large portion of India, and established colonies in other parts of Asia and the Middle East. However, imperialism during this time was also driven by missionaries looking to spread Christianity, and colonizers searching for gold. This was when conquests in Central and South America by Spanish conquistadors led to the slaughter of millions of indigenous people. As Longley notes, quote, "It was during this period that some of imperialism's worst human atrocities took place." End quote. The second period began in the 19th century and lasted until the end of World War One in 1918. Longley places the beginning of this period in the mid 19th century, but an article on the Victorian School website called "The British Empire" describes the time from 1815 to 1914 as "quote Britain's imperial century." End quote. During this time, the British Empire grew to include 14 million square miles of territory and about 450 million people. Which was more than one quarter of the world's population at the time. You may have heard the phrase, "quote The sun never sets on the British Empire," end quote, which is attributed to a Scottish writer named John Wilson. British dominance during this period was what Wilson was referring to, and it's the period that I'm going to focus on primarily for the remainder of this episode. Although, since I brought it up. I'll add that the third period Longley identifies occurred between the early 1930s and 40s, and included Japan's invasion of China, Nazi Germany, and the Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin. And if you're wondering if Russia's recent invasion of Ukraine would fall into this category, or maybe it's part of a fourth category,、uh, how Longley would classify it, that I couldn't tell you. But you kind of get the idea. It's still going on, obviously. I've already mentioned that early modern imperialism was established largely for trade purposes. This was also true during the Victorian era, when air travel wasn't possible yet. And even today, a vast amount of cargo is transported by sea. However. Expansion in the late 18th century and 19th century was also strongly driven by a desire for cheap raw materials due to the Industrial Revolution. According to an article on the Victorian Era site called "British Empire During Victorian Era," most of these raw materials came from colonies during this time. When you think about the number of new and exciting inventions and technologies that were introduced during the Industrial Revolution, and in particular during the Victorian era, you can see that the need for these raw materials was greater than ever before. And as you might imagine, European countries were eager to fight for dominance. And as their economies grew, so did the desire to control local governments to an extent that hadn't been seen prior to industrialization. Longley explains that during the 
so-called second industrial revolution, which occurred between 1870 and 1914, imperialist policies typically stressed the European nation's, quote, perceived superiority over so-called backward nations, end quote. In other words, the native populations were viewed as, quote unquote, uncivilized, and the colonizing forces were seen as more advanced and therefore as a civilizing force. These views led to a great deal of racism, as well as colonized peoples being expected to learn the language of the colonizers, adopt their religious practices, and the like. Granted, some will argue that there were some positive effects on the colonized people, which I bring up not because I agree with them, but I do think it's important to look at what some of imperialism's defenders were saying just to kind of get a better idea. For example, an article on historyplex.com called Facts About Imperialism notes that because increased trade also increased the need for communication, cars, trains, telephones, and other more quote-unquote advanced technologies were introduced to countries that had previously relied maybe on dirt roads and horses. Improvements in health and medicine were administered to native populations. New job opportunities became available. Caste systems that had previously prevented members of lower classes from learning became less prominent. And people were able to communicate with each other better due to the fact that they spoke the same language. Again, I think it's pretty easy to find opposing arguments to nearly all of these so-called benefits. For example, I think they show that how the language, culture, education, and so on of the European elites were promoted as quote-unquote ideal over those of the colonized peoples showed that the colonizers sought to make the colonized peoples dependent upon them but I think that looking at arguments like these is important because it can help us understand how attitudes like these tend to make their way into the dominant narrative. I mentioned a few minutes ago that British imperialism reached its apex during the Victorian era. But an article on the coffee bean called The Victorian Era and, and the British Empire notes that Britain's dominance began first when they defeated the French and Spanish at the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805, and then in 1815 when they defeated Napoleon Bonaparte at Waterloo. Afterward, the Royal Navy became the most powerful in the world, which established Britain as a quote-unquote global policeman who, as Victorian school notes, was able to control the economies of countries in addition to its numerous colonies, such as China, Siam, which we now know as Thailand, and Argentina. Another phrase you may have heard is, quote, Pax Britannica, end quote. Pax is the Latin word for peace, and it refers to the relative peace during much of this period, when Britain didn't have any international rivals who could challenge its dominance. Although it's not like no one tried to unseat Britain.
An example of this came in the late 1880s, which resulted in unclaimed parts of the African continent being divided among a handful of European nations. In Great Britain and the scramble for Africa, Kathleen Burke explains that as Britain sought to expand its power from the Cape of Good Hope to Cairo in Egypt, it repeatedly came into contact, particularly with its longtime rival, France, and that war almost broke out between the two nations over Fashoda, which was part of what was then known as Egyptian Sudan and is now known as South Sudan. In addition, as Nige Tassel points out in the Victorians and the British Empire, a brief guide and timeline, quote, Colonies were often far from acquiescent when it came to coming under the rule of the British crown. Uprisings were a recurring motif of the Victorian imperial age, end quote. Tassel goes on to cite the Indian Rebellion of the late 1850s, which was an uprising against the East India Company due to widespread resentment among Indians toward British socioeconomic policies, including education, religion, and some of the other things that I told you a few minutes ago are often cited as quote-unquote benefits of imperialism. The first Taranaki War in New Zealand in 1860-1861 and the Morant Bay Rebellion in Jamaica in 1865. I'm going to end this discussion of Victorian-era imperialism here. But in addition to being a controversial topic, this is also an extremely complex topic, and I'm sure I've left a lot out. I just wanted to briefly touch upon this for some time, because even though I don't talk about Victorian-era politics much on this show, because for one thing, I really don't consider myself that knowledgeable on the subject or necessarily qualified to talk about it, colonialism and imperialism have a way of rearing their heads when you least expect them to. I remember way back in episode three of this podcast, when I was putting together my episode on the Victorian era freak show and coming across examples of people from the colonies who were brought to England and displayed as so-called oddities who were miraculously discovered and civilized by intrepid European explorers, such as Crow, a young girl covered in fur who was taken from her home in Laos and exhibited at the London Aquarium by the great Farini who was really an English showman named William Leonard Hunt. And in the episode I did right before this one, on tattooing, I mentioned that Australia was originally a penal colony. So I wanted to give you a little more information on colonialism and imperialism now, so that the next time they come up when I discuss a topic that, on first glance, may seem to be unrelated. And I think it's pretty obvious that it's always there. Imperialism had some effect on just about every aspect of life during the Victorian era. Certainly, this is true for literature of the period. Rudyard Kipling and Joseph Conrad are examples of writers who based much of their work on imperialism. But it's present in more subtle ways in other works as well. But sometimes, if we tend to be focused on one topic it can be easy to overlook what's also in the background. But now, I wanna know what you think. 
please email me at the Victorian Variety Show at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at anchor.fm slash marissa hyphen d96 slash message. You can also follow me on Twitter at at Victorian Variety One. And if you'd like to support the show financially, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash marissadf13. Or you can leave me a tip if you're listening on Good Pods. Finally, I would really appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, or wherever you're listening, as that'll help a lot more people find out about the show. And by the way, you can now listen to this show on Amazon Music and Audible. I'm not sure if you can rate podcasts there yet, but I'm excited to be on Amazon Music, so I wanted to mention that. Until next time, thanks so much for listening and for all of your support. I've been receiving some amazing feedback, and I can't express how it feels when people tell me how much they're getting out of this show. Imperialism and colonialism are topics that I would encourage you to keep in mind when approaching this era. And I'll be including links to all of the sources that I consulted in the show notes. So I hope you'll check them out. But in the meantime, I'm going to leave you with a quote from a late 20th century scholar who's written extensively on imperialism and colonialism. Edward Said, a Palestinian-American professor and critic who passed on in 2003. This excerpt is taken from Said's 1993 work, Culture and Imperialism. And I chose it because I think it emphasizes that imperialism is always with us, whether we're looking at the Victorian era or our present day. To a very great degree, the era of high 19th century imperialism is over. France and Britain gave up their most splendid possessions after World War II, and lesser powers also divested themselves of their far-flung dominions. Yet, once again recalling the words of T.S. Eliot, although that era clearly had an identity all its own, the meaning of the imperial past is not totally contained within it, but has entered the reality of hundreds of millions of people, where its existence as shared memory and as a highly conflictual texture of culture, ideology, and policy still exercises tremendous force. Franz Fanon says, quote, we should flatly refuse the situation to which the Western countries wish to condemn us. Colonialism and imperialism have not paid their score when they withdrew their flags and their police forces from our territories. For centuries, the foreign capitalists have behaved in the underdeveloped world like nothing more than criminals." End quote. We must take stock of the nostalgia for empire, as well as the anger and resentment it provokes in those who are ruled. And we must try to look carefully and integrally at the culture that nurtured the sentiment, rationale, 
and above all, the imagination of empire. And we must also try to grasp the hegemony of the imperial ideology, which by the end of the 19th century had become completely embedded in the affairs of cultures whose less regrettable features we still celebrate.